Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. I'd like to extend a special welcome to those who are joining us on Facebook Live this morning as weather has providentially hindered us from meeting. But we are grateful for technology this morning. Uh, at last count, the ministry of Harrison Hills Baptist Church is now being viewed in over 20 countries. And that is a blessing. We are thankful for that. Well, as you know, the freedom we have enjoyed today to meet and worship is not a given in many countries in the world, nor can I say with certainty that it will be a given in our own country over the coming years. One Christian apologist, uh, by the author, an author by the name of Greg Kokel, who wrote a, a well-received book titled Tactics, which I would commend to you, he was writing about a trip he had made to what was then the Soviet Union. And this snippet of the story picks up after they had been stopped at the checkpoint with a few Bibles in their possession. And the stoic Soviet guard, he stated to Greg and his traveling companions that it is forbidden to bring Bibles into or other religious material into the Soviet Union. She continued, in the schools we teach the children from when they are young that there is no God. Only old people believe in Him. Our people are taught Marxist-Leninism, that man will solve his own problems and build a wonderful society on earth. Our Department of Atheism, yes, they actually had that, spends large amounts of money each year teaching them these things. We don't allow any other propaganda. Coco replied, but you do print Bibles here in the USSR, I asked. Yes, we do, she answered. Our believers get all the Bibles they need, but they're given out only through the church and we must have all the names. But you do have religious freedom. Yes, we have religious freedom. Yet we can't bring Bibles into the USSR, I asked. No, we don't allow that propaganda in our country. The Bible's propaganda? Yes, but you print Bibles in your own country. Yes. Now I'm confused, I remarked. You say you have religious freedom, but we're not allowed to bring Bibles into your country because they are propaganda. Yet you say you print Bibles right here in the Soviet Union. She nodded in agreement to each statement. I was surprised she didn't see what was coming. That means you're printing anti-communist propaganda right in your own country, I concluded. Her reply was cryptic. But we have separation of church and state. Then she added, we teach our children there is no God. We don't want them to believe in God. Coco said, but these, believe, these Bibles are for believers, not non-believers. She said, our believers have all the Bibles they need, she repeated. Even if I took your word that, oh, that you, even if I took your word that you'd only give Bibles to believers, what if one little booklet got into the hands of our young people and they read it and become believers? What then? She was clearly worried about the possibility. Do you mean to tell me, I answered, that you can spend all that money every year on atheism, that you can teach your people in school from when they are very young that there is no God and one little book could change all that? You're awfully frightened of such a small thing, aren't you? It must be a very powerful book then. Yes, it is a very powerful little book. It changes lives, it changes countries, governments. Its truths have commanded the destiny of nations. And in truth, governments who devise evil are right to fear the Scriptures falling into the hands of their citizenry and for the preaching of that word to be spread freely. It tells the reader that there is a higher law than government, a higher power than the state. 
that we will not worship Nebuchadnezzar, we will not worship Baal, and we most certainly will never worship Caesar. Just recently, French Minister of the Interior, Gerald Darman, in an interview, he said, quote, Evangelicals are a very important problem. We cannot discuss or reason with people who refuse to write on paper that the law of the republic is superior to the law of God. That sounds much more like something Nero would have said in such brazen fashion, and yet here we are. Yet these are be exciting days for the true church. Exciting days, and we know that. For a government that devises good, that promotes righteousness, that protects its people, that punishes evildoers, that functions in accordance with Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, you will find no more loyal citizen than a follower of Christ. Amen? Amen. Well, our last time together in Mark was a barn burner of a scene. As Jesus not only put himself out in public in a very big way, but in a manner for all to see. Walking along the roads at Capernaum, Jesus rejects the apostate Judaizers, the Pharisees, by not only calling a tax collector, Matthew, to be his disciple, but dining, indeed reclining with tax collectors and sinners in their home. And what came to the surface in a way that will become more and more apparent as the Gospel of Mark unfolds is the absolute incompatibility with this religious form of the Pharisees and with what Jesus came to do. Not that Jesus rejected the law of the Old Testament, just the opposite. Jesus came to fulfill that law and to keep it perfectly on our behalf. No, what we are seeing is grace versus self-righteousness. Mercy versus legalism. Forgiveness versus rejection and separation. This distinction will be in high definition again in our text today as Jesus clashes with the apostate religious leaders. So let's dive in, beginning with our text. Mark 2, verses 18 through 22. Mark 2, 18 through 22. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and they said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost in the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is so much in this text for us to grasp. The very heartbeat of the gospel is present Open our hearts, give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we might be vessels fit for your gospel and fit for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, many things in life are incompatible. We don't need to travel far in our current climate and environment to find ideologies and worldviews that are diametrically opposed to one another. They're oil and water. 
And while it's regrettable to see such rancor and division, the presence of absolute truth, in this case, the claims of the gospel will necessitate division at some juncture. The reformer Martin Luther famously said that it is better to be divided in truth than united in error. And the claims of the gospel, as Jesus said in John 14, 6, that I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. That statement is not compatible with any other worldview. It is exclusive. It's all-consuming. And though many, many attempt to sew on patches of Christianity onto their old garment of life, this never works. Though many do try. And as we'll see in our text this morning, many do. Beginning at verse 18, Mark 2, verse 18, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. Well, we cannot seem to escape these Pharisees, can we? All right, well, we better get used to it because they're not going anywhere. What we have been witnessing since the beginning of chapter 2 is an increasing and escalation with these religious leaders and with Jesus. Recall in the healing of the paralytic, the challenge or the antagonism of, of the Pharisees and the scribes, recall it was largely unspoken. Remember, they, they simply reasoned within themselves. This was an in, internal monologue that they were having. Now, our last message was a verbal confrontation at Matthew's home. And today will be a verbal confrontation. The next encounter will be a verbal confrontation. And finally, as we get to chapter 3, we will see the Pharisees already plotting to take Jesus' life. Five stories in rapid succession in chapters 2 and 3, all elevating intention and conflict with the Pharisees. So keep that big picture in mind. Now, I want to address the first group at the beginning of our text here. Notice it says John's disciples, John's disciples, speaking, of course, of John the Baptist's disciples. And I have to say that this is a puzzler for quite a few reasons. And honestly, we don't really have a lot of clarity as to why they were present and why they're mentioned here. Mark will only mention them one other time in chapter six. But otherwise, we're forced to glean why they would possibly be here. And in fact, why they are fasting on top of it. Well, we know that John the Baptist preached and he taught thousands and thousands of people. This specific group here did not necessarily witness Jesus' baptism and everything that happened there or know that this was the Jesus that John spoke of and pointed to. In fact, if we look to Acts chapter 19, there's no need to turn there, but we see Paul actually encountering a group of John's disciples years after these events and these disciples still did not know that Jesus was the entire reason for John's ministry. They had no idea. Now, John the Baptist was a big deal. He was a big deal. Remember this. People came from all over to hear him in the wilderness. He was well, well known, and his disciples would be zealous for their leader. And Jesus was now starting to pull that limelight from John. And yet that as well, as John said, he must increase and I must decrease. Perhaps John's disciples did not like someone else hogging the oxygen in the room. Speculation, something I rarely do, but that's what we must do. What we do know is based on the timeline, John the Baptist is in prison at this point. We know he will eventually be beheaded for speaking truth. And perhaps John the Baptist's disciples resent 
Jesus not mounting an armed mob to free John? We don't know. But with John not present, we don't know what is being taught to these disciples. They may have joined the Pharisees in some sense for a, a religious authority to have, to, for a structure to join. But whatever the reason, they are with the Pharisees. And that is curious. The Pharisees were certainly no fans of John the Baptist. No fans. Calling someone a brood of vipers, as John did, tends to chill a relationship. Yet we've often heard that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And of course, later on, we shall see Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians who bitterly detested each other becoming strange bedfellows in the common cause of killing Jesus. We see that today in our own nation, don't we? Various religions and special interest groups who would normally despise each other will happily come together under the banner of persecuting the true church. When the events of Revelation and of Matthew 24 unfold in persecution against the church, it will take quite an eclectic bunch of different people to make that happen. But it will happen. It will. Or seeing John's disciples and the Pharisees together, it could be as simple as political jockeying. That could be what we're seeing here. And as John has been arrested at this point and put into prison, that could explain their reason for fasting as well. They were fasting for John in prison. And of course, the Pharisees are fasting. They are always fasting. We need to stop on this for a moment and talk about this concerning fasting. Fasting is a wonderful discipline. I can say with conviction that some of, of the most special times of growth in my Christian life have accompanied times of fasting. I've watched prayers take on jet fuel when accompanied with fasting. It is a discipline that should in some fashion be a part of growing in sanctification. Now, some have medical needs, etc., that preclude straight fasting. So we encourage abstaining from other things. How about an electronics fast? Phones, TVs, computers. I think I heard some people just say, no, thanks, I'll starve rather than give up my phone, thanks. But while it does typically surround the absence of food, if you cannot, consider something else you may be able to fast from for a season. I have never, no, not once regretted having fasted. And I caveat that lest you think after today's message that I'm saying fasting is not good or that you just got a no fast permission slip. Not at all. It is a wonderful discipline. But as with all things, the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. We shall soon see this. So what of the fasting here with the Pharisees? What's wrong with it? What are the heart issues here? Well, there are three main ways within Judaism that you could show the rest of the world just how super spiritual you were. Prayer, fasting, and giving. We see many instances throughout the Gospels where we observe the Pharisees doing all of these things loudly and proudly. A pastor friend of mine told me once of a woman in his church who was a very prominent woman in the congregation, you know, probably had her own pew with her name on it, that kind of thing. He said one day he received a call at the church from this woman. And she said, Pastor, what would one do if one wanted to donate $50,000 to the church? The pastor replied without hesitation, well, one would put it in the offering receptacle. To the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. 
Here, if we look at the word for fasting in verse 18, it is, it's a given, it's given in the present tense, meaning the Pharisees were doing it continuously. It was a frequent, habitual practice. Yet if we look at the Old Testament, if we look to the law, which they so prided themselves in, we see only one day was commanded for fasting. The day of atonement, Leviticus 16. One day. Yet they did it constantly. In fact, every Monday and every Thursday, which by itself is fine. But did they do it in secret as Jesus taught? Did they wash their face and comb their hair and let no one know that they were doing it? Not at all. They would walk around disfigured faces moaning. Please help hold me up. I'm weak from all my fasting. Hold me up past the offering box that I might put in my large offering for all to see. Hold me up. And before I leave, I feel a very loud and boastful prayer brewing in my spirit. I feel a desire to thank God that I am not like all the other sinners out there. The Pharisees were not following God's law who desire mercy, not sacrifice. They made an apostate religion all their own. It was foreign to the very law that they claimed to know and serve. And they soon found out that this form of religion was incompatible with what this Jesus fellow was teaching. The Pharisees weighed all of Israel down with their works and their laws, and they were none too pleased that this one who everyone is starting to call rabbi and teacher is not subscribing to their faux religiosity. These groups now bring a question to Jesus. Second part of verse 18. Second part of verse 18, they ask, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. You're their teacher. You need to answer for them. Why are they not conforming to our Judaism? Not only are their motives skewed in this question, they were, they're not offering a helping hand here. This was accusatory. Their entire understanding and foundation is flawed from the start. They need a rapid realignment. And Jesus is about to give it. Though sadly, they will not have eyes to see or ears to hear. Jesus' response tells us volumes about the chasm that exists between the gospel of mercy, of grace, of forgiveness, and meekness to that of self-aggrandizement and self-righteousness. The difference between the two are not a matter of two sides of the same coin. They are two different coins. They're irreconcilable. Oil and water, light and darkness. Let's look and see how Jesus responds to this chastisement from the Pharisees. Verse 19, And Jesus said to them, while the bridegroom is with them. The attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. What just happened? Gasoline on a fire is what just happened here. Jesus is bringing a stinging rebuke. He's telling the Pharisees that their entire understanding of everything around them, what they're seeing, what they're practicing, who it is they're talking to right now is absolutely covered in darkness. It is polar opposite of correct. And we touched on this, but notice again what John's disciples and the Pharisees are doing. They're fasting, right? Well, fasting is correlated in the law with a time of somber reflection. Fasting was a time of sorrow and grief throughout the Old Testament. Ashes, sackcloth, you know the deal. Your fasting is for grief. 
and for sorrow. And yet, how does Jesus refer to himself? As a bridegroom. Where do you have a bridegroom at? A wedding. A celebration. You're mourning when you should be celebrating. You're missing the entire boat. Jesus said you are completely wrong. To quote a comedian, you wouldn't get it if it came in a large bag marked it. Somber grief and celebration are not compatible. They are irreconcilable. But to get the chasm here, to get the depth of this rebuke, we need to understand the historical context of Jewish weddings. A proper Jewish wedding in these days was about a seven-day event. Guess who was responsible for handling all the wedding plans and the celebrations? It was the attendants, the friends of the bridegroom. His closest friends would be responsible for hosting the festive atmosphere and for keeping the party going for seven whole days. And this was such a time of feasting and celebration that rabbinical law actually forbade the practice of fasting during these times. And fair enough. I think we've got many bride, former brides and grooms here today and on, on Facebook that, uh, could you imagine showing up to your bachelor or bachelorette soiree and everyone was sitting there somberly without a drop of food in sight? A little bit of ash sprinkled on their head? After overcoming the insult, we might rightly suppose that these people do not understand what was happening here. Their actions are incompatible with the event, meaning they don't understand. The Pharisees don't see the wedding because they don't see the bridegroom standing right in front of them. They're blind. Every word of their law points to the bridegroom that's standing right in front of them. In the incarnation, the coming of Christ, the wedding feast has begun, and here they are fasting. They don't get it. Now, what of this label Jesus gives Himself? Bridegroom. Bridegroom. Did Jesus merely use this label so He could use make a wedding analogy? No, it's much more than that. With Jesus, it always is. The Old Testament does not refer to the coming Messiah as the bridegroom. It never uses that language. But it does refer to Israel as the bride of the Lord, making God the bridegroom. Jesus is adding definition and color here. This is a claim of deity that Jesus is making floating right there on the surface. I am the bridegroom and I have come for my bride. When the bridegroom shows up for the celebration, that is no time to fast. Weddings are a time of new beginnings, of new relationships being forged and consummated. We who were separated from God by our sin will be brought into relationship with Him by this very wedding. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Revelation 22.17 If you are fasting, you do not recognize that the bridegroom has come. If you have no part of the party, you have no part of the person. So the first part of Jesus' answer here in verse 19 is not only a veiled claim of deity and showing that they are completely blind to whom it is they're speaking, but it shows that someone who is fasting at a wedding is not part of the celebration. They're on the outside looking in. And in a bit of irony, the very law that they profess to follow, 
prohibits fasting at a wedding celebration. Now, the second part of Jesus' answer, verse 20, is far more ominous and prophetic. Verse 20. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast on that day. There is a mountain of things we need to see here. First, this is a forward-looking statement. This is prophetic. This is not forth-telling. This is foretelling. God knows the end from the beginning. Jesus knows exactly what will happen to Him. He was there when the plan was put into motion in Genesis to reconcile sinful man to God through His death, His burial, and His resurrection. And here we see the bridegroom being taken away. Is that normal for ancient Jewish weddings? In this type of wedding, does the bridegroom leave? Or do the guests and the attendants leave the bridegroom? The guests leave. They leave the new couple in their home to start their new life. Not here. We see the bridegroom being taken away. And our word here for taken away is a violent word. This is not a leisurely exit. This is taken by force, violently. What is Jesus looking to here? His crucifixion. His violent death on a cross. Giving Himself as a substitute for those who would be saved from the wrath that is to come. And indeed, it is still to come. And when, back to our text, when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. What do we see? The season of fasting will return. The bridegroom is going to be violently and forcefully taken away from the celebration. Then, then it is time to fast. And just as a side note, this shows us clearly for Lanesville 2021, the discipline of fasting continues to this day and should be practiced as we are able. Jesus is going to continue this dialogue with the Pharisees, giving even more salt and light to the darkness, verses 21 and 22. But what has been the thrust of the message thus far in verses 19 and 20? Dr. John MacArthur writes about this exchange, quote, Judaism at its most devout level, as exemplified by the scribes and the Pharisees, was completely out of touch with God's plan of salvation. They were mourning when they should have been rejoicing. Consequently, they had nothing in common with Him. He's saying that the messages are completely incompatible. They were consumed with self-righteousness. He preaches divine grace. They denied they were sinners. He preached repentance from sin. They were proud of their religiosity. He preached humility. They embraced external ceremonial traditions. Jesus preached a transformed heart but they loved the applause of men. He offered the approval of God. They had dead ritual. He offered a dynamic relationship and they promoted a system. But he, promoted, he provided salvation. That's the message of Jesus thus far to the Pharisees. Your system, your understanding are completely off. It will not get you where you think it will get you. We have irreconcilable Gospels irreconcilable you pride yourself in being a child of abraham but god can raise up children of abraham from the rocks on the ground if he needs to but lest jesus leave the pharisees without enough of a beatdown, he is going to expand his analogy or what some might call a twin mini parable that is itself explosive in application and meaning verse 21 and 22 we'll read them together 
as, as one verse, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. This is one of the most profound messages that rings into 2021 with the crash of a thousand cymbals and the sound of a five alarm siren. Jesus is not speaking cryptically here. He's using two analogies that everyone listening would understand. Everyone listening would know that you cannot put a new piece of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. But what is this old garment? What is this old garment? Is it the Old Testament? No. Jesus embodies. He fulfills. He was the co-author of the Old Testament. The entire purpose of the Old Testament was to prepare us for a Redeemer. So that's not it. The Gospel preparation of the Old Testament is completely compatible with the Gospel of the New Testament. Was it the Mosaic Law? Again, no. Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The law today plays a huge role in our life as a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The law certainly then is not the old garment either. What is it then? What is this garment that if a new patch, a new piece of cloth were added to it, it would tear apart? To what is this new piece of cloth incompatible? In this case, the old garment was the legalistic system of rabbinical tradition. Extra biblical requirements that had nothing even to do with the Old Testament. It was the religious system of self-righteousness and of works. This old, filthy, stained stench of a garment is not worthy to have the rich, new, bright patch of the Gospel sewed onto it. Not only is it not worthy of this new patch, it would never work. They're diametrically opposed. One is of grace, yours is of works. One is stained with the stench of self-righteousness. My Gospel gives you an alien righteousness from Christ. A righteousness that is not your own. One that you could not earn in a thousand lifetimes of good works. No, the Gospel is not a fixer-upper. The message of the cross does not arrive in a person's life to patch it up. When Jesus Christ transforms a life, he throws the old garment into the fire. With all of its sin-stained guilt, it is burned up in the fire of His perfection. And you're given a brand new garment. Brand new. Many, many attempt to follow and walk with Christ with their old garment on. They want to keep their old life. They want to keep their pet sins that they hold so dear. They want the comfort of the old ways. They want their legalism. Unbiblical thought patterns. A section of the heart or a sin in the darkness that they think they only know about. There's no such thing. We want to keep our garment of self-love. Our clothing of idolatry. Our fashionable, functional messiahs that we prop up every day that fail us continually. Many, many who name the name of Christ have simply come to be patched up. I'm going to keep my filthy garment. I'm going to continue to do me. But I need a little Jesus here. Let's sew on that Jesus patch. It won't work. It will not work. 
If He has not given you a completely new garment, you have no part in Him. Jesus is not a patch. I've said it many times. The Gospel is not in addition to your life. It is in exchange for your life. There is no 50% Gospel. There is no patched up Gospel. You either possess Him, the lover of your soul who has clothed you in a new garment of righteousness, or you have no part in Him. The legalism, the works, the old patterns, the old way of life and thinking as a dog returns to its vomit like the works of the Pharisees, none of these can receive the Gospel. Unless the parable be lost on someone, Jesus goes on. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost in the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Well, making wine was something of a sight in, in ancient days. The usual vessel was goatskin. It was goatskin. You would take the skin or the hide. Anyone who's a deer hunter in here is about to appreciate this. They would cut it at the legs and the neck. They would turn it inside out and they would tie the legs shut and they would use the neck as the top. Basically as a pouring spout. And as the wine would ferment, it would release gases that would greatly expand the new goatskin. An old goatskin would have lost its elasticity. If one put new wine into old wineskins, it would burst. The Gospel is the new wine. What you are hearing this morning right now is the new wine. What you're hearing, it's the new wine. When it gets poured in, it expands. It grows. The good news of the Gospel must have a vessel prepared to receive it. Think about the church in Galatia. A better example of pouring new wine into old wineskins you could not find. The old works righteousness of Judaism as the vessel having the new wine of the Gospel poured in. There were those in the Galatian church that desired to bring the two together. The law, the ceremonies, the circumcision, along with the Gospel of Christ. You cannot hold the world in one hand and Christ in the other. You can't do it. Many take in the new wine. Many take it in. They're exposed to the Gospel. They hear it. They even internalize it. They may sit in church week after week. Guess what? When new wine is poured into old wineskin, it doesn't burst right away. It takes time. Time for the gases to build up. Time for the trials to come. Time for temptation to come. It doesn't burst right away on contact, but it will burst. Make no mistake. It will burst. Many who name the name of Christ have taken in the Gospel week after week in their church. But they're just waiting to burst. It's still the old wineskin. The Bible says that God is a jealous God. He shares His glory with no man. He does not patch His Gospel onto our way of life. The Gospel is absolutely exclusive and all-consuming. It does not share space. It is forced, if it is forced to share space, it will eventually ruin your garment or will explode your vessel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is incompatible with anything that has come before it or anything that will come after it. It is the plan of the ages since Genesis. That message of the gospel is simple. It's very simple. We broke God's law. Every one of us in here or listening online today has lied or stolen or dishonored their parents, or just 
failed to keep God first in their life. The list of ways we have fallen short could go on for days, if we were honest. Because of this sin, we were without hope. And God being perfect cannot look upon sin. And unless something was done to fix our sin problem, we were destined for an eternity in hell. God looked upon us in our helpless estate. He had mercy on us. And in the plan of the ages, He sent Jesus Christ. He came to earth from a virgin womb. He lived a perfect life and by God's plan, He was crucified on a cross. It was our sin that put Him there. He was perfect. He did no wrong. But a debt had to be paid. A sin debt that you and I had accumulated had to be satisfied. So Jesus took our place. Where we deserve to die, He died. God the Father accepted this perfect sacrifice. And we know this because He gave His ultimate stamp of approval by raising Jesus from the dead three days later. Over 500 people witnessing Him alive. Speaking to Him. The disciples who were cowering and afraid when Jesus was crucified went boldly into the world after this resurrection and nearly all would give their lives for what they knew to be true. Jesus ascended into heaven and He now sits at the right hand of God the Father praying for us. Jesus is praying for you. Interceding for us. Any that will repent of their sin and turn in faith to Jesus Christ, He will forgive you. He'll give you a new garment. He'll give you a new wineskin. That is a message that will share heart space with no other. The Gospel is everything or it is nothing. It cannot be patched onto your life. And it cannot be contained in old wineskins. We must be made new. Let's pray. Most merciful Heavenly Father, we have heard Your Word in Your Gospel spoken for the truth of Your Word. Lord, we know that we cannot patch You onto our lives. We know that we must be made new. We know that we must be a new creation to receive the new wine. Lord, I ask that You would help us to ponder this message this week, internalize it, chew on it, roll it around, in our hearts and in our minds. And bring it to us, bring it to our thoughts, Holy Spirit, that we might not sin against you. We love you, Father. We ask that this message would go forth, that it would do its work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.